you have a nightmare? No, I'm worried about this family's financial future. Does your retirement plan provide predictability of income and protection against market risk? Do you have good supplemental health insurance? What about estate planning? Car insurance? Dents are easy to fix, but liability's the nightmare. Buddy, we're with AIG. Oh. The AIG companies, the strength to be there. Ah, don't get up. I'll talk about something. No sun life. No sun Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. It's Monday, March 2nd, 2009. And today, Adam, we're going to talk about the ongoing and ever costlier bailout of the insurance company AIG. And we're also going to ask you, the listeners of Planet Money, for your help. But first, the Planet Money Indicator. Now, we could have said the Planet Money Indicator was well below 6,800, which is what the Dow dropped to, but we're not. Right. Today's indicator is 5, 5%. Right, which is the U.S. savings rate. How much um, Americans are saving of their salaries, of their income. Right, right. And the, the savings rate is calculated in a pretty rough way. It's basically – and it's pretty straightforward. Economists just add up all the money people in the United States spent on everything from houses and luxury yachts to donuts, dollar coffees, and, and taxes. And then they subtract that number from how much people made all their personal incomes added up. And so the, they don't call a bank and say, how much did people put in their savings account? They no. don't call Fidelity and say, how much have people put in their 401ks? They just say, how much did they make? Subtract how much they spent. Right. And the difference as a percentage of how much they made is called the savings rate. But it does actually end up including most of the money that we put in our 401ks and in our pension funds and in our savings accounts. So it actually does represent basically how much, how much we're saving. Right. The reason we're talking about it, the reason 5% is a newsworthy number is probably many of you have heard this thing that we as a country do not save nearly as much as many think we should. If you look at a chart of the U.S. savings rate, um, it's been just falling since the early 1980s, back when it was up above 12%. People were saving a healthy amount of their income. And it's been Pretty close to zero, basically on balance. We know many of you do save, but on balance, Americans and as a group do not have not saved anything basically um, uh, for for many years. It's even gone negative, where Americans were spending more than they make. So when you, s- I think it's a, I think it's acceptable to just say it's seen as a good thing when savings goes above zero. We, that we can be objective journalists and still say that, right? Except that people, the the reason for all the savings seems to be uh, fear. People are sort of stocking up for bad times ahead. So that's the negative of this silver lining that we're trying to give you. Right. And at least according to what many people believe, the higher the savings rate is right now in the middle of this crisis, the worst times will be. Because right now in the short term, the surest way to get this economy growing is for everyone to sort of irresponsibly spend. That is what Keynes called the paradox of thrift. Um, the more each individual does a responsible thing in certain conditions, you can add up to a very irresponsible thing for the nation and vice versa. The more irresponsible we are individually, the more responsible we could be overall. I think everyone agrees that over the next 10, 20, 30 years, we need to save more. I think a lot of economists would like to see us spend more over the next few months. And right. And basically, the stimulus plan is sort of one way of sort of Thinking about it is that the more the more if Americans are going to start saving more and all of a sudden become thrifty, then the U.S. government has to become a little bit more profligate in their spending. 
Right. Someone has. <laughs> Somebody has to go to debt. Right. That is yeah. a theory. Yeah. All right. And now we're going to move from personal saving to corporate saving, or actually backwards uh, saving corporations, in this case, AIG. Um, the U.S. government has yet again come to that company's rescue and to the tune of around $30 billion. It's complicated, but that's about it. And this is on top of probably over a $100 billion that the government has already made available to AIG, which raises a question, Adam. Right, which is why. Why is the government spending? I mean, we, we talk so much on this podcast. You hear so much in the news about Citibank, Bank of America, the, the auto industry. But we have poured so much more money into AIG and taken on as a nation, as a government, as taxpayers, so much more risk from AIG than all of those other ones. And, and it's sort of interesting. Why is the government so committed to spending so much money to save this one insurance, insurance company? This insurance right. company that right. probably a lot of people, while it is, I believe, the largest insurance company in the world, probably a lot of people hadn't even heard of it. Right. And it's like one of those things if before the crisis, before this crisis started, you'd pose the question, okay, th- say things go to hell and the U.S. government has to step in and, you know, sort of avert disaster. Which American company is the most important company to save? I don't I, – I challenge anybody. Nobody would have said AIG. I can't imagine that anybody would have said AIG. Right. You might have said Citibank. You might right. have said Bank of America. You would not might have, have said, said GE or GM, something like that. But yeah. Not AIG. AIG. Right. right. So we wanted to figure this out. And basically my question was this. The government you know, has clearly decided that letting AIG fall is, is disastrous. But I wanted to know – well, we, we wanted to know how. How is it disastrous? Let's say today, instead of the headlines we actually read, U.S. extends AIG bailout. That's from the Wall Street Journal. What right. if the headline was U.S. lets AIG collapse? U.S. to AIG. Drop dead. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, what would this week look like? Right. So we called up a guy, Greg Berman, who is the head of risk at a company called Risk Metrics Group. And we asked him to play along with our, with our scenario. I think this would be a chain reaction that would look much, much larger than we, what we saw when Lehman went out of business. Many people, many financial institutions uh, have uh, debt outstanding uh, that was sold to somebody who in turn was protected because of insurance with AIG. Right. So when that, when that goes away, that triggers payments everywhere. So let me just... I say to Alex, hey, can I borrow 100 bucks? And Alex says, but I know you're a deadbeat. You never, I don't know if I trust you. And I say, oh, don't worry. Greg is selling me an insurance policy. If we give him $1, he promises to cover my 100 in case I can't pay you back. And Alex says, okay, well, I trust Greg, so I'll give you the 100 That's exactly right. And right. then Greg suddenly has a heart attack. No offense. A different Greg. We're talking about a different We're talking about another Greg. Greg. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. So so, so you're gone, or Greg, this other Greg is gone. And Alex says, wait a second. I I didn't trust Adam to begin with. The only reason I gave him 100 bucks was because he had that insurance contract. He he gets on the phone. He calls me. He says, Adam, I need my 100 bucks back. Or or he calls Adam and says, Adam, you know what? I need need you to give me, put some more money in an account or pay pay it. Give me 20 bucks so I know you're good for it. So I know you're good for it, basically, right? Is that what's happening? That's that's exactly right. And so there's like literally millions and millions of atoms out there. And we're not talking about $100. We're talking about billions of dollars. And so all these, if AIG went out of business, all these companies would be forced to basically put more money up 
to show that the people that they've borrowed money from that they're good for it. That's right. Everybody has to come up with more money. And, uh, and they don't have more money. They don't have more money. And when everybody at one time has to come up for, with more money, what they do is they sell things that they have to raise that money. But if everybody is selling at exactly the same time, then all of a sudden the thing they're selling becomes much less valuable. Right. If I say, okay, I'll it. do it. I'm going to sell my watch. But there's 400 other people in my office selling their watches too. Suddenly watches aren't that valuable because it's easy to get a watch. We're talking not about watches, but right. That, no, that's exactly right. Also, right. so when you talk about when people talk about posting collateral, that's what they're talking about, basically, right? That that's exactly right. So they're going to have to come up with more collateral. Also, um, a lot of times, uh, the collateral is part of transactions that involve obviously the credit markets. So when when there's rushes on collateral, that also tends to freeze up the credit markets, and they're about as frozen as you can get right now. Mm-hmm. So this actually – I didn't understand that. Rushes on collateral doesn't – I don't know what that means. And credit markets, I'm not sure. Can, can we spell that out? Sure. So the, the, ability, the ability to borrow money mm-hmm. is in part based on your credit rating. Mm-hmm. And when you have insurance back again, you can borrow money. I see. If you're being asked to post collateral and it's collateral that you otherwise don't have – You want to borrow it. So uh, – well, th- this – this does not allow you to borrow more money. So let's go back to your example, which says that um, you owe Adam $100. Mm-hmm. And now you need a little bit more money right. because you want to finance something. But the insurance that you had that you were going to pay, that, that was basically with, uh, with this other guy, Greg. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so that's gone. Right. So not only are you, will you probably be asked for collateral, but... Even if you're not asked for collateral, what is this likely to do for the next 15 or 20 or $50 that you need to borrow to finance something? It's going to make it much harder for you to borrow that money. Much, much harder. I see. So, so it's a double whammy, basically. Exactly. So you have the, the ability. So the, when, when I say the credit markets, it's the ability to go out and borrow money. So that ability is curtailed. So and collateral is the fact that you've got to post money. Mm-hmm. So you, at the same time, people are asking you to come up with money. You might need to borrow some money, and you can't do that either. All right. I think I just want to go back to the week. Like today, the headlines would have been – they weren't. But today, the headlines would have been AIG suffers more losses. U.S. government says go to hell. And AIG collapses. What What are the headlines tomorrow and Wednesday and Thursday? Um, well, first, the, the market itself would plummet. But that's not going to be a – that won't be temporary. Mm-hmm. That would that would be um, very very long standing uh, because it would be driven not by sentiment but really by the economy, which would basically say the knock on effects of all of those who were insured in losing that insurance will uh, will cause many more write downs that are much larger than the ones that you see at AIG. Is Wednesday's headline several major companies that we've heard of have gone bankrupt? Have gone out of business. It's probably not going to be Wednesday, but it'll be by Friday that you will see um, other financial institutions and some of the large companies. Oh, it'll take. Oh, so we have four days. Right. It'll yeah. it'll it'll take towards towards the end of that week. Um, you're going to see knock on effects at other financial institutions. You will also see um, other governments and other municipalities, whether they be international or local, uh, different regions, um, also 
not necessarily declaring bankruptcy, but saying that they have a significant problem. Mm-hmm. And and the week that Lehman went bankrupt, as we all remember, perhaps. Yep. The, it was so dramatic and people got so scared because they knew there was going to be these explosions. They just didn't know where they were that basically short term credit markets ev- just completely stopped. Nobody could get any money for for um, for anything for a while. And, and you know, Alex and I used to joke that and it's not much of a joke, but that the U.S., the global economy was effectively dead. Like when they say you were you were dead before we revived you with the uh, with the heart zapper machine, mm-hmm. that the, the economy was basically dead for a few hours um, that week. Is, is that the kind of thing we'd be seeing if AIG went down? I believe so. Um, though it would probably be even larger than when Lehman went down. But lest I sound like a doomsday machine here, um, this, is, this is not a scenario that I believe will, will come to pass. Mm-hmm. I think if AIG did go out in the way that you've described, then, these, then, these would, then this would occur. However, um, this is completely um, controlled or controllable. So to the extent that this is such a bad scenario, the federal government will not allow that scenario to pass. Mm-hmm. So basically, we're on the hook. <laughs> like we are, we as taxpayers, we are married to AIG, and I believe their last quarter losses were the largest losses ever by any company in the history of losses by companies. Is yeah, my understanding? I think that the numbers are pretty staggering. So, if that was nothing compared to next quarter's losses and the quarter after that, or even worse, we're with we are we are riding this ship to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> we are married to AIG. Right. Um, that that's true. With with the one exception that it's not necessarily true that this is going all the way to the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, what you really just need is time. You need time and deep pockets. Right. And the government has both time and deep pockets. Mm-hmm. So this is a case where uh, having a large player like like a a, a U.S. government come in uh, and prop prop things up. It's it's not necessarily a bad idea, right? So, it's like it's like the government is sort of like it seems like the government is sort of playing the role here, and it's sort of in a larger sense of sort of everybody's rich uncle, where they're like, I can't find a job. I'm like, I've, I've I got to make all my rent payments. I gotta I've got to buy all my groceries, and I just don't have any money right now. And the government's like, you know, sooner or later, you're you're pretty good. You got a good degree. You're going to be able to find a job soon, and we're just going to subsidize you basically until until you do. Do you think that's accurate, or is that, am I like is that way too oversimplified? I I, I think that's accurate, um, and un, unlike though the rich uncle, where the person's obviously not making any money, uh-huh. uh, there's at least a part of this where you'd say this is a liquidity issue. So mm-hmm. the person has some money. Uh, so the nephew has some money. It's just that he can't get access to the money quite yet. I see. Right. All right so there, this this isn't the disaster scenario where you would say. Everything here is completely worthless. Right, right, right. You know, in in the end, um, there there is inherent value under there. Mm-hmm. The the only question is how much is that value and how much is that loss? Okay, that was Greg Berman at Risk Metrics Group. Adam, we started today with the savings rate indicator, um, but in the short life of Planet Money, our very favorite indicator has been the TED spread. You know, Alex, when we started Planet Money, one of you remember, I was pushing for the name of Planet Money to be 
the TED spread. Right, exactly. Which and nobody I, I, liked. Nobody liked. <laughs> no, no, you kept on saying, no, it's great, it's great. And everybody was like, everybody we bounced it off of, nobody had any idea what it meant, and it was all confusing to people. Right. right. Um, so uh, Laura Conaway, our um, our, our Laura Conaway. Um, hey, Laura. You have been, hi, hi, Laura. Yes. Welcome. So you have an update on the TED spread. I do. It's a good thing we didn't name ourselves the TED spread because we've been getting a lot of letters lately from folks who say that the TED spread is essentially useless anymore as an indicator. I think we sh- I should jump in here and sort of say, what is the TED spread in case people are yeah. new to this? So, right? You want to tell us, Adam, what the... Sure. So the TED yeah. spread is, it's a, it's a way of measuring how freaked out the global economy is. Technically and specifically, it is the difference between what treasury three-month treasury bills are selling for in the U.S. and the overnight interest rate for euro dollars, meaning dollars um, lent by banks in other countries. So that sounds ridiculously gobbledygooky. But basically... The U.S. government is seen as the least risky investment in the world. So when you buy treasuries, that's considered a risk-free return. There's no risk to that. Um, normally, large international banks would be very low risk, almost as low risk as the U.S. government. So the TED spread measures how much more the large banks have to pay to convince you to borrow their money. Normally, it would be very little because there's very little risk attached. They don't have to pay a lot. During this crisis, it has been very high because for the first time in recent memory, banks, people were really scared about banks. So you want, that number is normally well below one, maybe half of a percent, but we've seen it creep up towards five, um, which is really scary, really shocking. Yeah. Today, actually, Ted Spread did tick up just a bit over one. It's 1.02 but lately, Ted Spread has spent most of its time under one. And yet, we all know that the economic crisis, the financial crisis, the credit crunch is still very much on. Wait, what? I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, it is. We still have a job. So, um, right, exactly. And the Ted Spread is kind of like a heartbeat. When it's normal, you're not really that interested. But when it's abnormal, it, it's really interesting. Yeah, but our, our hearts it. are all still racing really here. So we need a new way to measure it. The TED spread is maybe not going to cut it. I started looking for alternate ways of measuring the crisis. And the first one I got, you guys, comes from Mark Chandler. He runs a currency team at Brown Brothers Harriman. And for him, the whole crisis comes down to a question of too much debt or leverage. Right. The companies all over the country, all over the world have too much debt and we consumers have too much debt. We've borrowed too much. Banks have borrowed too much. They're way over leveraged. Investors have too much borrowing. They have too much leverage. Mark says the crisis is basically deleveraging, getting rid of debt fast. When you get rid of debt, either the lenders have to give up on it and write it off or the borrowers have to pay it off in a hurry. And one place you can see this happening is in the chart for margin debt at the New York Stock Exchange. Now, margin debt, that's another technical term. Right. So the, so this is a new so this chart of margin debt is going to be is is one one suggestion for the for an indicator to replace the TED spread. That's right. It's one mm-hmm. indicator. And the margin you're going to hear Mark Chandler talking about basically means buying stocks with borrowed money. The margin use has dropped sharply by more than 50% from its peak. But no sign yet they were done that the deleveraging process by this measure is over yet. That is, there's still people who have margin money. I, I want to say uh, about $240 billion outstanding, and they're, they're paying it down. 
Okay, the thing about buying stock on margin is that it's regulated by the government. So if you want to buy $100 worth of company X and you only have 50 bucks, you can get your broker to loan you the other $50. That's the most you can have, two to one. And this is because many people believed that the depression was in part caused by people borrowing huge amounts to, to buy stock. So they'd have $1 and they were free to borrow 10 or 20 or 50 bucks and it ended up creating an unstable system. So if you buy $100 worth of stock and it then falls in value... I believe we have seen some stock fall in value. (laughs) I think that's possible to find. Right, right. Yes. Yes. We're familiar with that phenomenon now. You still owe 50 bucks for what you bought in the first place, but the stock you're holding is worth something like 20 bucks. Or in AIG's case, 40 cents. Something like that. Cup of coffee. Suddenly you are over leveraged and you get a margin call. And that means someone says, you got to pay now, buddy. That's right. Right now, margin calls are part of the deleveraging on Wall Street. The other part is that people think it's just too risky to buy stocks on margin. They don't want to take the bet. Either way, Mark Chandler says that margin debt is useful for him as one new indicator. This is not something that can be monitored every day, but uh, once a month just to see, have we, ha- has, it, has the leveraging, deleveraging process come to an end? Is it smoothed out? Have we hit a plateau? Exactly. And we're nowhere near a plateau uh, well, right I, now. I, I, I don't know. I just know that there's no sign yet that we stopped falling. We have fallen by as much, if not more, than we have in past credit crises. Okay. And so, we're, so I want to say that this is an unusual credit crisis. It's more severe. And so we should expect the, de- the deleveraging process, I anticipate, to go on through the bulk of this quarter and maybe even into Q2. So, guys, Mark Chandler is saying that margin debt could keep falling right through June, pretty much. The new number from January just came out today. It's actually $177 billion outstanding in margin debt at the New York Stock Exchange. That's down from $186 billion in December. Well, thank you very much, Laura, and uh, thank you to all of you for listening. Uh, you can see the latest data on this in a chart on our blog, npr.org money. I'm Adam Davidson. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Laura Conaway. Thanks for listening. But I got a hunch.